Turn this morning, brethren, to our discussion of the work of pastoral oversight as it relates to those particular functions connected with ordering and leading the public worship of God. And in our consideration of these things, we've taken up guidelines for the ordering of those gatherings mandated by the Word of God and those gatherings precipitated by cultural or what we might call traditional expectations. Now, in both of these categories, no little part of our responsibility is to be found in the prayers that we pray as the mouthpiece of the people of God or of those gathered on any given occasion. And in the light of this fact, we're going to consider this morning the very neglected but highly important subject of cultivating the gift of public prayer. Now, assumed in the title of our lecture are two vital principles. Number one, that a man called to give primary leadership in the public gathering of the people of God will have some measure of a divinely imparted gift of utterance in prayer. The title of our lecture is Cultivating the Gift of Public Prayer. Assumed in that title is that a man called to give primary leadership in the public gatherings of the people of God will have some measure of a divinely imparted gift of utterance in prayer. Now, in proving this point, I can only argue from the lesser to the greater. In 1 Timothy 2.8, in conjunction with the public worship of the gathered church, Paul states in very unequivocal terms, I will that the men or the adult males pray in every place. With reference to the whole subject of behavior in the house of God, the apostle indicates that it is the will of God that the men pray in every place. Now, if the crowning mandate for all public utterances in the gathered church is the mandate of 1 Corinthians 14:26b, let all things be done unto edifying, then the men who lead in the prayers must have a measure of the gift of utterance in public prayer which will make their prayers edifying. Now, if that's true of the ordinary males in the congregation who lead in prayer, and here I argue from the lesser to the greater, how much more of those who most frequently will be found leading in prayer in virtue of their office as overseers in the flock of God? So I argue from the lesser to the greater, the males are to pray. Everything in conjunction with public utterance is to be done unto edification. If, therefore, the ordinary males who pray must have a measure of the gift of utterance in prayer to make their prayers edifying, how much more those who are equipped by the risen Christ to be leaders in his flock. Now, the second vital, vital principle embodied in the title of our lecture relates to the idea of cultivating the measure of gift given. We're to consider this morning cultivating the gift of public prayer. 
And to prove that this is our responsibility, I would argue by way of analogy. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy is commanded to stir into flame the gift that is in him. In the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 4 in verse 14, he is told, neglect not the gift that is in you. The one a negative injunction, the other a positive injunction. While the gift was given as a divine bestowal, it is yet to be cultivated and fanned into flame by conscious spiritual and intellectual endeavor. These texts therefore underscore the responsibility that is ours in every facet of ministerial duty to apply ourselves with conscious endeavor to improve and to prune not only what God has given in nature, but what he has imparted in grace. So those two principles are bound up in the very title of the lecture. Now, in taking up the subject, we shall gather our thoughts under three major headings. A general introduction to the subject of cultivating the gift of public prayer, and I will have three main headings in that introduction. Then secondly, general guidelines for the cultivation of the gift of public prayer. And then finally, some miscellaneous practical suggestions with respect to cultivating the gift of public prayer. First of all, then, a general introduction to the subject, and the first of my three headings in this introduction is this. I want to say a word about the importance of this subject. In taking up the whole subject of the pastor as an overseer of the life and worship and ministry of the local assembly, we focused on that watershed text pertaining to the behavior of God's house, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Now, in the section of 1 Timothy where behavior in God's house is indisputably the explicit subject, the first concern addressed is congregational prayer. 1 Timothy 2.1 I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men. Now, with reference to giving a matter of first importance some clear scriptural analytical consideration, I can do no better than to quote from the article by the Reverend H. Humphrey, past president of Amherst College, and you will have this material in your possession before the day is out, in which he says, and I quote, I cannot dismiss the subject of your pulpit performances without offering a few hints upon prayer. Prayer as the only medium of communication between earth and heaven is an exceedingly important part of public worship. In your sermons, you are the mouth of God to the people. In your prayers, you are the mouth of the people to God. And how important that when you rise up in the great congregation, to address the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, your lips should be touched with a live coal from off his altar. Were you an Episcopal minister, the great thing would be to read well. 
Having all the prayers before you in the liturgy, you would, of course, feel no anxiety in regard to the matter of your prayers. But as you are a Presbyterian, I add brackets or Baptist or any free churchman, and pray without a book, the case is very different. You are responsible for the matter as well as the manner of your prayers. You must compose your prayers either in the study or in the pulpit. Am I right in thinking that this branch of education for the ministry is less attended to than its importance demands? I confess it appears to me that many of our young ministers preach much better than they pray. And may not the reason be that preaching has somehow come to be thought a much more important branch of public worship than prayer? But is this a right view of the subject? Our fathers did not think so. They laid great stress upon appropriate, fervent prayer and were remarkable for the apt and free use of scriptures in their prayers. And so Mr. Humphrey underscores the tremendous importance of this subject. And while still considering its importance, I want to add this thought. You are not only the mouth of God, mouth of the people towards God in your public prayers, and must therefore seek to be as vigorous, broad, and varied as the needs and motions of the hearts of your people require, but you are also a major model and pattern of how they ought to pray, both in secret and in public. And Dabney, in underscoring the importance of the subject, focuses upon this fact. On page 347 of his work, now entitled Dabney on Preaching, Dabney writes, the public prayers of the pastor are apt to be the models of the devotions of his people. When he leads them in prayer, he is really teaching them to pray. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath. Prayer is the appointed channel of his whole redemption. How mischievous is that man who by his coldness, inappropriateness, irreverence, vagueness, unbelief, chills the aspirations and obstructs the access of a whole multitude which he should have led up to the mercy seat. Prayer, as with preaching, is in great measure an imitative and an absorbed spiritual art form. Prayer, as with preaching, is in great measure an imitative and an absorbed spiritual art form. If our prayers are the effusions of the moment, characterized by trite phrases, meaningless repetition, lack of structure, truncated and grammatically sloppy, let us not be surprised if these things characterize the prayers of our people. <clears throat> This is a tremendously important subject. Secondly, by way of introduction, let me say something about the necessity of conscious effort in cultivating the gift of public prayer. 
Although I alluded to this matter in defining the terms used in the title of today's lecture and in giving a justification for that title, I wish to carry the matter further at this point. I am personally convinced that the lack of the cultivation of the gift of public prayer is not only due to a failure to grasp its importance, but is greatly to be attributed to a haunting suspicion or an ill-conceived conviction that conscious cultivation and careful preparation of one's prayers are an intrusion of carnality into the sacred discipline of prayer. It's my own conviction that there is in the mind or in the minds of many men a haunting suspicion or an ill-conceived conviction that consciously to cultivate the gift of public prayer is an intrusion of carnality into the very sacred exercise of prayer. Now, the masters of the past faced this issue squarely and addressed it convincingly. I quote from Dabney and then from Samuel Miller's classic work on public prayer, which is thankfully again in print. Dabney on page 346 and to the top of 347 writes as follows. Some affect to think that the spiritual nature of the exercise, that is, of public prayer, ought to preclude preparation. That because it is the Holy Ghost who teaches us to pray, we should not attempt to teach ourselves. This argument is a remnant of fanatical enthusiasm. Nothing like calling a spade a spade. Should we not also preach with the Spirit? Why, then, do we not extend the same sophisms to inhibit preparation for the sermon? The answer is that the aid of the Holy Spirit does not suspend the exercise of our own faculties. He works through them as his instruments and in strict conformity to their rational nature. He assists and elevates them. He helps us also in prompting us to help ourselves. Bethinks, bethink yourselves, my young brethren, that it is no slight undertaking to guide a whole congregation to the throne of the heavenly grace and to be their spokesman to God. To speak for God to men is a sacred and responsible task. To speak for men to God is not less responsible and is more solemn. Then listen to Samuel Miller speaking to the same matter. We are no doubt warranted in imploring and expecting the aid of the Holy Spirit in every department of our spiritual services. Hence, he who has the residue of the Spirit speaks of pouring out upon his people the Spirit of grace, and of supplication. And again, it is said, the Spirit helps our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Yet neither in prayer nor in any other exercise of religion 
are we to suppose that the Holy Spirit's influence is intended to supersede the exercise of our own faculties, but rather to stimulate, to strengthen, and to purify them? Of course, our petitions for that influence and our confidence in its aid, so far from forbidding or discouraging efforts to cultivate our minds, and to enrich them with appropriate furniture for leading the devotions of our fellow worshipers, ought rather to excite to unwearied diligence in making the best preparation in our power for discharging in the best manner this as well as every other duty of the sanctuary. We ought to desire to ask and to expect the aid of the Holy Spirit in preaching and in the prosecution of all our studies and duties. But would any man in his senses imagine that the expectation of such aid was adapted to discourage the use of appropriate means for enlarging and invigorating the mind, filling it with useful knowledge and with the materials for the best judgment and taste in divine things? In all spiritual influence, God deals with us as rational creatures, not by superseding or suspending the use of our natural faculties, but by so quickening, elevating, enriching, and strengthening them as to make them capable of greatly improved exercise. I hope, therefore, that every candidate for the ministry will bear in mind that as his pulpit work is his great work, so every part of that work is vitally important and ought to be studied and prepared for with unceasing diligence. Instead of stopping to balance whether the instruction or devotion of the sacred desk is the more important or the more worthy of his regard, let him resolve to prepare for both and to discharge both in the best possible manner. This is the only resolution worthy of him who desires to make the most of every talent he possesses and of every opportunity he enjoys for the glory of his Master in heaven. So, brethren, the old masters were very, very conscious of the tremendous importance of the subject and of the necessity of conscious effort in cultivating the gift of public prayer. Still under this second heading of our introduction, I would ask you to remember the incident in Luke 11 when the disciples apparently overhearing our Lord pray at the conclusion of his prayer said, Lord, teach us to pray. <laughs> our Lord did not respond by saying, it can't be done, trust the Spirit. Nor did he say, beware of anyone who attempts to teach you to pray. It is wholly given. No, our Lord then gave instruction as to the matter and manner and spirit of true and acceptable prayer. In this, as in all the facets of ministerial duty, exercised with divinely parted gift and ability, we are responsible to stir into flame the gift that is in us. 
Now, having said something about the importance of the subject, secondly, the necessity of conscious effort in this area, now my third category under the introduction is to address the intimate relationship which exists between the state of our hearts and the quality of our public prayers. The intimate relationship that exists between the state of our hearts and the quality of our public prayers. Our Lord articulated the great maxim or rule in bringing these two things together when he said in Matthew 12:34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, while fully acknowledging that there are such devilish things as pretentious prayers, remember our Lord spoke of the Pharisees, who for a pretense make long prayers. There are such things as hypocritical prayers, artificial prayers. The general principle is that our prayers will reflect more than even our preaching the true present condition of our hearts before God. Our public prayers will reflect more accurately than even our preaching the true present condition of our hearts before God. Again, listen to some of the fathers of the past on this point. On page 55, in Spurgeon's masterful lecture to his students on public prayer, he writes, habitual communion with God must be maintained or our public prayers will be vapid or formal. If there be no melting of the glacier high up in the ravines of the mountain." There will be no descending rivulets to cheer the plain. Private prayer is the drill ground for our more public exercises. Neither can we long neglect it without being out of order when we come before the people. Then Ebenezer Porter, on page 301 in a book that has long been out of print, writes, If you would pray well in public, you must be a devout man. This is by far the most important advice that belongs to the subject. Indeed, if this one point is attained, all other directions are comparatively needless. Not absolutely, because he goes on to give a lot of other directions, but comparatively. The habit of a man's piety is everything as to his devotional performances in the pulpit. To expect that he will be fervent in these if he neglects communion with God from day to day is just as unreasonable as to expect that the racer will win the, win the prize on the day of his trial if his limbs are crippled by lack of exercise every other day of the year. The man who is not carried out in sincere and sometimes rapturous praise and adoration in the secret place is very unlikely to carry a whole congregation with him into the presence of God with holy joy. The same is true with respect to confession of sin. It is unlikely that there will be truly spiritually pathetic heart-rending confession of sin if the man of God in the pulpit is a stranger to that in the closet. 
It is unlikely that there will be any earnest pleading for sinners in the sanctuary if there has not been earnest pleading with God for sinners in the secret place. Little truly empathetic crying to God for the needs of the saints in public prayers if there is not in the language of Galatians 4.19 travailing in birth that Christ be formed in them in our secret prayers. Again, hear the words of Ebenezer Porter on page 303. I will add that the spiritual habits of the soul must be consistent. The man who should live on a regular and salutary diet and yet take a small dose of poison daily would carry a sickly countenance. And he who is exact in his seasons of prayer and yet violates his conscience in some other point of duty will not grow in communion with God. After all your pains to cultivate a habit of devotional feeling, should you sometimes find, as doubtless you may through bodily infirmity or other causes, a sluggish spirit in public prayer, mourn over it and strive against it. Search for the causes of such a state and avoid them. Call that heart to account that dares to slumber in its solemn approaches to God. When you stand up to pray in the sanctuary, remember that the immortal interest of a whole assembly are to be carried before God. You are to ask at His hands infinite blessings without which they and you are lost forever. Pray as becomes a dying man. Pray as becomes a minister of the gospel surrounded by dying men who are hastening to the judgment. Pray as one that sees heaven open and hell without a covering and the Son of Man sitting on the throne of His glory, and all the nations gathered before Him. Pray as one that has been accustomed to pray in the closet, as one that has often mourned for sin in secret and looked to the bloody scene of Calvary, to an atoning and interceding Redeemer and a sanctifying spirit for help. Dabney aptly summarizes his own observations by stating in these very blunt words, quote, that the many blemishes we hear in public prayers are to be traced to two sources. First, deficient piety, and second, deficient preparation. Now those were the observations of a seasoned, wise, godly old man. He said the deficiencies in public prayer that he observed could be traced ultimately to two sources, deficient piety and deficient preparation. Well, I trust in this introductory presentation you are at least in some measure convinced of the importance of the subject, the necessity for conscious effort, in this area of great ministerial privilege and awesome responsibility and the intimate relationship that exists between the condition of your heart at any given time and the quality of your public prayers. Now then, we come in the second place, our second major division of the lecture today, general guidelines for the cultivation of the gift of public prayer.
general guidelines for the cultivation of the gift of public prayer. And what I've done is I've read everything I could get my hands on on the subject of the public prayers of a servant of God, and I sought to find the common denominators, to collate them into their various categories, and it is in those categories that I will attempt to lay out this material before you. First of all, then, guidelines with respect to the fundamental intention of our public prayers. If we are unclear as to the fundamental intention of our public prayers, we will never pray well in public. What are you doing when leading the worship of God's people? You say, let us pray. Let us now come to the throne of grace. And by the way, don't ask a question, shall we pray? You're not asking a question. You're saying, let us pray. We shall now all seek the face of God in prayer. And I don't know where the habit ever got formed, but it's a bad one that's been passed on for at least two generations. Don't say, shall we pray? You're asking a question that demands a response. If words mean anything, a question demands a response. You're not saying, shall we pray like shall we dance? It's something far more solemn. And I would urge you to state your intention to lead the people to the throne of grace in a much more straightforward manner of assertion. Now, what are you doing when you say, let us pray? Are you merely filling in a segment of an unwritten liturgy? Are you seizing an opportunity for indirect exhortation? Are you seeking an occasion to display your cleverness? Are you engaging in a segment of private devotions in the presence of your people? Precisely what are you doing when you say in the solemn assembly of the people of God, whether in a biblically mandated gathering or a culturally precipitated gathering, precisely what are you doing when you say, let us pray, let us come to the throne of grace, and then you begin to speak in God's presence. Well, let me state in the simplest terms possible that the fundamental function, the intention of public prayer is one in which you are seeking to be the mouthpiece of the entire congregation in the diversified aspects of its approach to God. You are seeking to be the mouthpiece of the entire congregation in the diversified aspects of its approach to God. Listen first to Spurgeon and then to Dabney addressing this matter of the fundamental intention and function of our public prayers. So pray that by a divine attraction you draw the whole congregation up with you to the throne of God. So pray that by the power of the Spirit resting on you, you express the desires and thoughts of everyone present and stand as the one voice for the hundreds of beating hearts which are glowing with fervor 
before the throne of God. That's page 60 of Spurgeon's lectures to his students. Then Dabney on page 353 expresses similar sentiments. But second, the pastor must look to the position in which he stands as the leader of public prayer to determine the manner of its performance. He says, if you don't know who you are when you're about to pray, you'll not do what you ought to do when you pray. He is the organ of the people, not of himself, save as he is one among them. He speaks the mind of the aggregate church in that place. He is to pray in behalf of the church then, as the church should pray for itself. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He is to pray in behalf of the church, then, as the church should pray for itself. If a Christian could be found who was the fair type of what his brethren in that place should be, the pastor should speak just as that representative man would, only changing individual expressions into public and common and the singular member into the plural. And so it's vital then in establishing guidelines for the cultivation of the gift of public prayer to be settled as to the fundamental intention of our public prayers, which is that we be the mouthpiece of the congregation to God in the solemn special presence of God. Now, if this is your fundamental intention, then you will studiously avoid several major faults of public prayer. <clears throat> Keeping this intention constantly before us will guard us from the following common faults in public prayer. Number one, we will avoid preaching or exhorting in our prayers. We will avoid preaching or exhorting in our prayers. Listen to Parsons, and this is some of the Xerox material you will be getting. Do not preach in prayer. I mean not to exclude the proper language of adoration, but you have no occasion to spend your time in telling God what he is, how many great and glorious perfections he possesses, and in what manner he governs the world. Nor is it necessary that you should expatiate upon the doctrinal articles of your creed or the institutions and obligations of religion. Do not preach in your prayers. Blakey, page 173, says, There are prayers so called which in reality are little dissertations or preaching prayers. But public prayer is no prayer unless it represents and expresses the desires of the heart. An American writer in a footnote, he says, lists these following kinds of prayers that are something less than prayers. And he lists doctrinal prayers or prayers designed to inculcate certain doctrines that the speaker regards as important, historical prayers, hortatory prayers, denunciatory prayers, personal prayers, eloquent prayers, overly familiar prayers, sectarian prayers, 
and then he ends up with long prayers which weary and exhaust the spirit of devotion. All the kinds of prayers that would not be prayed if a man were conscious of who he is and what he's doing when he prays in the congregation of God's people. Avoid preaching or exhorting in your prayers. Secondly, and closely akin to this, avoid conscious teaching in your prayers. Avoid conscious teaching in your prayers. You have the pulpit in which to teach and preach. Let your coming in the role of an intercessor be that of an intercessor and not that of the teacher or the preacher. And uh, Dabney again speaking to this issue says, I say use direct language for some men are sometimes so didactic in prayer that they seem to be instructing their maker rather than asking blessings from him. Or if they mean to give instruction to their fellow worshipers, they forget that the proper place for this is the sermon and not the prayer. Now our prayers will teach indirectly. That's why I used my words carefully. Avoid conscious teaching in your prayers. Then thirdly, avoid all attempts to impress in your prayers. How can a man be conscious he is standing in the presence of God while at the same time trying to impress people with how clever he is in putting words together? Either the sense of God must go or any sense of preening himself must go. Spurgeon speaks very powerfully to this matter on pages 55 and 56 of his lectures his students listen to his words let the Lord alone be the object of your prayers beware of having an eye to the auditors beware of becoming rhetorical to please the listeners prayer must not be transformed into an oblique sermon it's little short of blasphemy to make devotion an occasion for display Fine prayers are generally very wicked prayers. In the presence of the Lord of hosts, it ill becomes a sinner to parade the feathers and finery of tawdry speech with the view of winning applause from his fellow mortals. Hypocrites who dare to do this have their reward, but it's a reward to be dreaded. A heavy sentence of condemnation was passed upon a minister when it was flatteringly said that his prayer was the most eloquent ever offered to a Boston congregation. We may aim at exciting the yearnings and aspirations of those who hear us in prayer, but every word and thought must be God-word, and only so far touching upon the people as may be needful to bring them and their wants before the Lord. Remember the people in your prayers but do not mold your supplications to win their esteem. Look up and look up with both eyes. Look up and look up with both eyes. Miller, on pages 29 and 30, again speaking very powerfully to this subject, writes, 
in order to bring to a simple and practical test what we ought to expect and what we ought to aim at in these exercises, let us imagine that we were listening to a humble, penitent, fervently pious Christian pouring out his soul to God in his retired closet, and when he supposed that no other ear than that of his Father in heaven heard his voice. What would we expect to overhear as the utterance of such a heart? Surely we would expect to hear him pouring forth his desires in simple, humble, unaffected terms. We should, of course, expect that everything like the glitter of rhetoric, everything like philosophical refinement or labored logical distinction, everything approaching to the didactic delineation of doctrine, everything in short adapted to meet any other ear than that of the God of mercy, or to answer any other purpose than to express repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and simple, humble desire for the blessing asked for, to be far away from such a person. The moment anything of this kind should be detected in the language, the tones or the topics of the bending Christian, professing to be engaged in his secret devotions, that moment a chilling doubt would come over us whether he could be more than half in earnest. And you see, his point is that that's the spirit and the tone that should be carried over into our public prayers, that there should be no attempt at making an impression. I quote from Blakey, page 174, in his excellent work, The Work of the Ministry. If prayer is, in the language of the Shorter Catechism, the offering up of our desires to God, not the desires of the minister as an individual, an exercise for which his closet is the appropriate place, but of the minister and flock together, of the minister as the representative of the flock, speaking with them and for them, he is the head and mouthpiece, as it were, of a deputation at the throne of grace, and ought to feel that he is there as a representative quite as much as the head of any deputation that ever went to present petition or memorial to a prime minister. It is his having this representative character in prayer that makes it so necessary for him to consider beforehand what his prayers are to consist of. Great individuality in public prayer, dwelling on things appropriate to his own condition but not theirs, is an impertinence and a wrong. Common prayer should have as its substratum what belongs to all God's children. Its starting point, man's guilt, demerit, want, and misery. Its attitude towards the cross and its fundamental petitions for the great evangelical gifts. Thus, even if the sermon should not be on the way of salvation, the prayers by their very structure, though not in formal words, would indicate that way, since the consciously lost sinner in the person of the minister would be seen looking up to the cross and asking for the grace which guides to heaven. You see, in the secret place, brethren, if you're real with God, you're not trying to impress him because you know it's the language of the heart that he reads, not the language of the lips. And that is the very tone and ethos that must be carried 
into the public place even while we are conscious that we are not in our closets but the spirit of the closet in terms of transparent honesty with no conscious intention but to impress our need and our praises upon the ear of God must dominate. And that all grows out of this awareness of precisely what you are doing when you lead the people of God in prayer. You are their mouthpiece. You are their representative at the throne of grace. And therefore, you will avoid preaching or exhorting in your prayers. You will avoid consciously teaching in your prayers. And you will avoid all attempts to impress in your prayers. Now, the second category of guidelines, we've looked at guidelines with respect to the fundamental intention of our public prayers. Now, secondly, we're going to look at guidelines with respect to the essential content of our public prayers. The things which I here suggest do not necessarily need to mark each and every prayer but they should describe the overall thrust and content of your public prayers over a period of weeks. Now, if you read the Book of Church Order that is appended to the edition of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms that is published by the Free, the free Presbyterians that we have in our bookstore, you'll see why it took the ministers 20 to 30 minutes to pray what they were supposed to pray every Lord's Day. When you read the section on what the prayer of the minister should cover, there's no way you could cover all of that in every prayer without taking at least 30 minutes or sometimes more. Now, I am not saying that our pulpit prayers should include all of these elements in every individual prayer, but in terms of the overall thrust of our prayers over a period of time, these elements ought to be present. First of all, the word that should mark our prayers is comprehensive. Comprehensive. And I say that because in that fundamental directive concerning the prayers of the church, we read, I exhort that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all men. And there the more technical distinctions of the various kinds of prayer are mentioned in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 1. And then the scope of the exercise of those various kinds of prayer is then enlarged upon in verses 2 and following. Or in the shorter version of this, Ephesians 6.19, we are to pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. That is, all kinds of prayer and supplication. Now, most of the old writers suggest that the major components of the content of prayer, particularly our public prayers, are invocation, that is, seeking the presence of God, adoration, magnifying and blessing Him for who He is, thanksgiving, expressing gratitude for mercies received, confession, the acknowledgement of sin, generic and specific, intercession, in which we pray for blessings to be brought upon others, and supplication, in which we present our own needs to God. 
most of the old writers suggest that our public prayers to be comprehensive should over the course of a relatively limited period of time include all of these elements of invocation, adoration, thanksgiving, confession, intercession, supplication. Now these elements are found in great measure in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in the heavens, hallowed be thy name, which is both adoration as well as supplication. Thy kingdom come, an element again of both adoration and of intercession. Thy will be done in earth, give us this day our daily bread, etc. When you read the great prayers of Scripture, remember the three nines, Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. You will see how these elements are there. In the midst of being the mouthpiece of the covenant people, Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, do not pray in the first person, apart from a few instances where Paul was unaccompanied by others. All of the recorded instances of prayer are always we, not I. Daniel did not say, O oh Lord, I, I, I. He said, O oh Lord, we have sinned. We have not kept covenant. We are ashamed. We blush, etc. These elements are found in the Psalms, in the Epistles, in the book of Acts. Remember that? A condensed version of their prayer after the first open opposition. They come into the presence of God with, with adoration and worship. O Lord of heaven and earth, who spoke by the mouth of your servant, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? And then there is supplication and intercession. Grant unto thy servants boldness. Now again I underscore, not all of the elements are present in all prayers, nor are all equally predominant in any given prayer. But I emphasize again over the long haul, these elements ought to mark our prayers. They ought to be comprehensive. Beware, therefore, of narrowness in the scope of your prayers as to these various dimensions. Beware of imbalance by emphasizing invocation at the expense of adoration or adoration at the expense of confession, etc. So we must seek to have our prayers marked by this word, comprehensive. Secondly, they must be definite. Definite. In the prayers recorded in Scripture, there is a definiteness whether it's confession of sin, whether it's praise or petition, you do not find masses of vague generalities that would make the prayer, if recorded, equally suitable in an entirely different setting. The praise of Exodus 15 draws all of its main elements from the recent deliverance out of Egypt. The marvelous peon of praise in Revelation 19 draws its major lines from the masterful, almighty, and awesome judgments of God in judging the great whore and glorifying his righteousness in that judgment. Now, Dabney 
addresses this matter very directly and helpfully on page 357 in his closing chapter in which he deals with the whole subject of our public prayers. Listen to what he says about definiteness. He who leads the devotions of others must study appropriateness of matter. He should ask himself what would be uppermost in the hearts of Christians at that time if they were supposed to be in a suitable temper. Let that be his topic. It is due from the judgment of charity that he shall credit God's children with that right temper. And he should desire at any rate to foster it in them by leading them to the expression of those desires which it should prompt. If the children of God have one thing upon their hearts and you force a different one into their petitions, you do them a grievous wrong. Every prayer should be studied with reference to the present wants of the church, and this will also secure definiteness. I'm sorry, I, I've slipped down to the quote on uh, appropriate. I'm very sorry. It should be page 356 on definiteness. My eyes slipped down on my notes here. It is of radical importance that the leader of the church's prayers shall present distinct and definite petitions and these not numerous at one time. One of the constant sins of our prayers is that we are vague and therefore feeble in our desires. We scarcely remember precisely what we asked of God. We do not watch and work for the answer. Now here's a very helpful insight. Prayer is the professed language of want or felt need. But felt need is always definite. He who wants, wants something a distinct thing. The leader of prayer should therefore speak as one who has an errand at the throne, a point to press with God. He should eschew loose generalities of petition and all that stream of indefinite goodish talk with which so many prayers are filled, which really express nothing save a slumbering faith and a heart void of desire. Nor should the emotions and memories of the people be burdened with many points in the same prayer. Sincere devotion is the most arduous exercise of the soul. It should therefore not be too much taxed at the same time. Definiteness in our prayers. And then, thirdly, appropriate. Appropriate. And the appropriateness of the substance of our prayers will have at least three facets. Number one, the content should be appropriate in terms of the most pressing concerns of the congregation in its internal life. The most pressing concerns of the congregation in its internal life. For example, if there is a crisis of discipline, the prayers for Christ's mercy upon the person disciplined, for his grace upon the church in its sense of shame or grief or shock, Surely those elements will dictate the major thrust of the prayer in terms of appropriate content. If it's a season of ingathering and it seems that God is, is brooding over hearts and, and the cry is coming up from more than one heart, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And appropriate prayers with respect to the internal and pressing concerns of the congregation will find this element woven into the texture of those prayers. 
Perhaps God has come with a shocking stroke of his judgment or chastisement upon the church in the removal of a godly person or the death unexpected of an ungodly person. Then, obviously, with that thought filling the minds and spirits of the people of God to pray the same prayer that you prayed the week before when there was no such dark cloud as to show great insensitivity to the needs of God's people. And here it is on page 357, Dabney, point number four, where he emphasizes every prayer should be studied with reference to the present needs of the church. This will also secure variety in your public devotions. So appropriateness then will take its clue, number one, from the most pressing concerns of the congregation in its internal life. Secondly, Appropriateness will be dictated in terms of the pressing concerns of the church in its external life and testimony. Its external life and testimony. I can remember back a few years ago, and I remember it because it's here in my notes at the time, uh, the congregation was very conscious the whole country was in a furor with the Pope's visit and in the church seeking to be light and salt and not knowing what visitors were present everyone was thinking about the Pope there was papal mania in the whole New York New Jersey metropolitan area with Papa Paul in the area and uh, uh, ubiquitous in terms of the airwaves and the TV uh, programs etc well, as the church is conscious of seeking to stand for truth against the whore of Rome, then surely that ought to find an expression in the prayers. Uh, at election time, I checked to see if someone prayed in the public prayers the Sunday before the election. I checked with my wife. Did the brethren alluding prayer pray for the forthcoming election on Tuesday? And she said, yes, they did. I said, good. If they hadn't, I'd have said, brethren, somebody dropped the stitch. These things must be guarded to make sure that the church as the light and salt and the instrument who is privileged to see God work in answer to her cries takes up her role nobly and patently in such times. And then appropriateness will be dictated not only by the internal life of the church, its external life and testimony, but thirdly, the content should be appropriate in terms of the standing responsibilities and ministries of the church. Public prayers should be offered for the blessing of God upon its preaching, its teaching, its missionary endeavors, its interchurch fellowship, its diaconal concerns, and then add this fourth word with regard to the content of our prayers, they should be varied. Now this goes inevitably or grows inevitably out of the foregoing since the elements of congregational life which influence appropriateness are not static but dynamic. The prayers of those who lead in prayer should reflect this reality. Shedd, in his book on homiletics, has a section on public prayers, and on page 272, 
he makes a very astute observation. After saying that prayer should include all of these various elements, he says the preacher should study his prayer in order that he may vary and change with the circumstances in which he's called to officiate. Some clergymen pray but one prayer through their whole ministry. It contains just so much preface, just so much confession, petition, and thanksgiving, and always in the same order. In reality, it's a form which is repeated from habit and from memory. It is destitute of the excellences of written prayers, and yet it is as monotonous and uniform as they are. So, from varied, we then move to the next element in the content of our prayers, and that is they should be scriptural. They should be scriptural. All of the writers on this subject are careful to point out that there is an unction and a freshness in prayers that are laced with the very language of the Bible. Now here again, you see, the connection of the closet and the pulpit is so vital. It's as you and I are praying in the Word in secret, making the Psalms the expression of our devotion and our inner cultivation of soul before God, as we're praying in the Scriptures that we're assimilating devotionally, such a man will find the Word shaping the very outbreathings of his heart in the sanctuary. You see, when you squeeze the sponge, you don't put anything into it. It's just making evident what it has been absorbing. Well, in a sense, in the public prayers of a man of God, the heart is like a sponge that is squeezed. And if that heart has been absorbing the Word of God in secret, then it cannot help but find expression in public prayers. If your prayers in secret are pleading the promises worshiping God in terms of biblical terms and phrases and whole passages, you will find that you weren't even conscious of committing those passages to memory. But in the act of praying, you will find them coming out and being laced with your own language. Another of the old writers has written, the copious use of scriptural expressions in prayer is of essential importance. The remark of Addison has often been quoted on the subject, although it's not very profound or exhaustive. There is a certain coldness, he says, in the phrases of the European languages compared with the Oriental form of speech. The English tongue has received innumerable improvements from an infusion of Hebraisms derived out of the practical passages of the Scripture. They warm and animate our language and give it a force and energy and convey our thoughts in ardent and intense phrases. To train oneself to make skillful use of suitable passages of Scripture in prayer is one of the most indispensable exercises of the young preacher. To achieve this power ought to be one of his most earnest endeavors for not to be able to throw his petitions into the language of the Holy Spirit is to fail in one of the most important means of edification which a Christian congregation can enjoy. And then I just read a brief quote from Porter. I hope your prayers will be eminently biblical as well as fervent, comprehensive, and appropriate. 
See that language that I've used? is not uh, strange. Nothing so enriches the devotional exercises of the sanctuary as the language of the inspired writers. Nothing breathes into these exercises so much of the breath of spiritual life. Nothing elevates an assembly of devout worshipers so near to the gate of heaven. You cannot study the word of God too diligently with reference to this particular object. It was said of an eminently devoted minister of the Old South Church in the city of Boston that he committed the whole book of Psalms to memory so he might always have at command an inexhaustible store of the most appropriate language for prayer. I would that every young minister might be induced to do the same. So, with reference then to the intention of our public prayers, we are the mouthpiece of the congregation. The essential content of our public prayers, I've sought to give you some guidelines with respect to them, and here we'll take a break, and then we'll take up thirdly the guidelines with respect to the linguistic form of our public prayers.